Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold, and I must admit, one of my very favorite hours on the afternoon show is when all I have open is my Bible, and I have a notebook and a pen. That's it. And that's what we're going to do for the full hour. We're going to discuss, continue our study in the book of First and Second Thessalonians with Bible teacher and friend Jeff Ferdorn. Glad to have him on the show once again. This is episode number 10 in our study, and we're working our way through all the way up to chapter 5. Jeff, welcome. Hi, Bill. Good afternoon. So nice to have this study continue. I know we're going to forge ahead into Chapter 5, maybe just a little tiny bit of review from the last time. So I can't believe we're on number 10 already going through this, but we're going through it verse by verse, detail by detail, precept by precept. And one of the things that we've discovered is that the rapture can be found in every chapter of First Thessalonians and Second Thessalonians, for that matter, Last time, we were in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and uh, in chapter 4 is one of the core rapture passages. It talks about the dead in Christ will rise first, and then after that, we who are alive and remain will be caught up or snatched up with them in the clouds, and there we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. We also, over the last two programs, looked at 1 Corinthians 15, which is another one of the core rapture passages that we will all be changed or we will all be glorified. And we did kind of a deep dive into this event called the rapture. And we kind of looked at the who, the what, the where and when and why and all the things related to it. So um, so we covered quite a number of passages on the rapture. And then specifically kind of last time, I think, yeah, it was mostly just last time, we talked about the reasons why, biblically, the rapture needs to happen prior to the seven-year tribulation to come. And as we go into chapter 5 here, a couple of the reasons that we discussed last time will come up right away. So we could probably just jump right in to continue a review and to start uh, some of the reading of chapter 5. Mm-hmm. And Jeff, can we always once again throw out that caveat that says not all people are uh, with us in the direction that we're headed. We're looking at Scripture as we are feeling led by the Holy Spirit to understand it, but there's a lot of people with mid-trib and post-trib positions, and I just want to be respectful of everybody and say what I think we all agree on is the Lord's coming back, and we'll be with Him for all of eternity. Absolutely. So uh, I always say especially in my classes when I teach on the end times and we discuss the rapture specifically and then the more specifically the timing of the rapture that look whatever view you have and there's lots of different views about eschatology or the study of end things uh, God's plan for the end of the age um, man there's this is about one topic that has more diversity of opinion than just about anything in all of scripture but specifically for the rapture we just need to make sure that whatever we conclude, 
We are like the Bereans, one who searches the scriptures every day to see if what Paul says is true, to see if what Jeff says is true, what Bill says is true, what your pastor says is true, and so on. So know what you believe and why you believe it from scripture. All right. And so when we come up with a doctrine for the rapture, just make sure that all of the appropriate and relevant passages fit together in a reasoned and logical puzzle fitting together. And that's what I try to do. That's why, uh, and I think the pre-trib rapture fits the, uh, the pieces just fit together so well with the pre-trib rapture. That's why I've concluded it. But yes, you're absolutely right. Many have also looked at scripture and come to different conclusions. Mm-hmm. All right. Shall I read from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, the first three verses? Are you ready for that? Perfect. All right. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. So this is one of the passages that we talked about last time about one of the reasons why the rapture needs to be prior to the tribulation. We see that it's going to come, this coming of the Lord, which is the second, I'm sorry, which is the rapture, is going to come like a thief in the night. This is a big clue to the timing of the rapture because it means that it's unexpected. A thief of the night comes at an unexpected time. You don't know a thief is coming. Otherwise, you would you would take the necessary precautions in the case of a thief. But we have this idea of immediacy, that the rapture can happen at any time. And we read a number of passages last time uh, kind of under this theme. The second clue here is that people are saying peace and safety. Destruction then comes upon them, meaning unbelievers, not on us, the brothers who are the believers. Now, brothers, about dates and times, I need not to write you. And by the way, we cannot know the date or the times of the rapture. We just can't. God tells us in a number of places and a number of ways that we cannot know the hour or the day. It's, it's, uh, it's uh, under God's purview to decide when that trump is going to blow and call us to heaven. Um, so, But destruction comes upon them suddenly. Uh, by the way, we Paul uses the phrase, the day of the Lord. You know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. This day of the Lord is actually, this is really cool. The day of the Lord, therefore, begins with the rapture of the church. It includes the tribulation period. It includes the second coming of Christ. In fact, very specifically, the second coming is described as the great and awesome day of the Lord or the great and dreadful day of the Lord. It's kind of a specific day within the day of the Lord. And it includes the millennial reign of Christ. So you'll see in the Old Testament descriptions of the coming kingdom being described in this language, the day of the Lord. So literally... The day of the Lord that Paul is talking about here starts at the rapture, includes the seven-year tribulation, and includes a millennial reign that is a thousand years. Well, what does that mean? It means that the day of the Lord is a thousand-year day. Oh, wait a minute. There's a verse about this, isn't there? 
I think there is. A day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. And people have tried to understand that, but I think what God is telling us is this day, this very special day, remember day can mean a day or an age, a period of time. And so the age of the Lord or the day of the Lord begins with the rapture of the church, includes the seven-year tribulation, the second coming of Christ, and the millennial reign, and is literally a thousand-year day. A day is like a thousand years, a thousand years like a day, Second Peter 3, eight. So, Jeff, in verse 3, while people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly. Now, if God's wrath is being poured out in the tribulation, would anyone be walking around saying peace and safety? Yeah, exactly. So the, I'm just asking. I'm, I'm not... Yep. No, I totally agree with that. Yeah. That And maybe if you're God's chosen and elect and you're in the midst of his wrath being poured out, we do feel peace and safety because we're part... We're being protected. That's that's kind of the flip side. Are we protected from the tribulation to come, or are we protected through the tribulation to come? And that's part of the debate. But I would argue when, when this passage says that when they're saying peace and safety, remember there's another passage that comes along that we're going to get to in just a minute. Might as well bring it up now. And that is in Matthew, it says uh, it's that this day is going to come just like the days of Noah. So when we read that, As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. That's the rapture, by the way. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving giving in marriage right up until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what was going to happen until the flood came and took them. There's that same them, right? Mm. This destruction comes upon them, not on us. And this is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man, the rapture. So there's some amazing parallels that we see in Thessalonians. We also see in this passage uh, from Matthew. Noah knew the flood was coming. We know that the rapture is coming. Noah didn't know when the flood was coming, obviously, until he went into the ark. And then destruction came upon them. We don't know when the rapture is coming for the rapture. Life seemed to be going on normally. There was eating and drinking and giving in marriage right up until the day that Noah entered the ark. Life as well before the rapture seems like it's going to be going on normally. People are saying peace and safety. If the if if the rapture was during the seven-year tribulation, there, this is mass chaos, right? This is Old Testament wrath of God's kind of stuff being poured out on the wor- on the world. And I doubt these descriptions uh, would be fitting of a world in going through the tribulation period. Uh, so life seemed to be normal right up until the day that Noah entered the ark. Life is going to seem to be normal right up until the day that that trump sounds and we go through the door to heaven, who is Jesus. The flood started at an unannounced time. The rapture is going to come at an unannounced time. And destruction comes upon them suddenly just as First Thessalonians uh, five verse four said that destruct or three says that destruction comes upon them. So the next verse, verse four in First Thessalonians five says, "But you brothers are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief." So, just like Noah, did the flood surprise Noah? 
No, it didn't surprise Noah. He knew it was coming. He spent 100 years building an ark. The church has known about the rapture for 2,000 years. This day is not going to surprise us. Now, some use this passage and another passage uh, about, in some versions, it talks about the season, that we can know the the season that is coming uh, of the Lord. And they'll say, well, we cannot know the specific hour and day, but we can know the season that the rapture is going to happen in. Uh, they argue that it's it's we 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 can't know the day and the hour, but we can generally know the timing, like it's going to happen, you know, this fall or something. And I I say no. I think the reason why Paul says that this day will not surprise us is not because we know when it's coming, but that it is coming. Mm. Just as the flood didn't surprise Noah so too the rapture is not going to surprise the church because God has told us that it's coming. So, Jeff, when Paul says that this will not overtake the Thessalonians or or any believers in the church age, uh, would it be because the church is going to be delivered from the wrath? Uh, God, God has not destined us for wrath. Besides, Jesus has taken the ultimate wrath because he died for us on the cross. Correct. Uh, that's exactly how I interpret these passages. Remember, some will argue that not all of the seven-year period is part of God's wrath, that some will argue, especially the mid-trib folks, will say the first half is the wrath of Satan, the second half is the wrath of God, or they'll try to redefine in some way what the wrath of God is, and that because Scripture clearly says that we're not appointed to suffer wrath, he keeps us from the hour of trial that's coming upon the whole world, and so on. So, but remember, the entirety of the seven-year period is from God. It's Daniel's 70th seven that God uh, proclaimed his judgment on Israel, and every single one of the judgments, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowl judgments throughout the entire seven-year period are all from God. Christ himself breaks the seals. We have angels blowing the trumpets, and we have angels pouring out the bowl judgments. So the whole seven years is the wrath of God. And just as you said, I'm, I firmly believe that Scripture indicates it fits together best with this picture that God, just like Noah, is going to keep us from the hour of trial that's coming upon the whole world. And I think that's us going through the door of heaven. And as, uh, as John experienced in Revelation chapter 4, he heard a voice from heaven and was caught up and then suddenly was in the throne of God. And that's exactly what's going to happen to the church. Mm-hmm. So the church is raptured out. The tribulation happens. And what about people who become believers in the tribulation? Will they be martyred? Will they die from death and devastation and destruction that's going to come on the world? Well, yes, some of them. Others will live um, all the way through the tribulation period and survive all the way to the second coming of Christ. And we actually see this in Revelation chapter 7. So John sees a vision of a great multitude in heaven that no one can count from every tribe and tongue and people and nation from all over the world. And so we know that during the tribulation period, which begins with no believers, by the way, mm-hmm. there's no believer because wow. we've all been raptured. 
But God will never let the world stay that way. So he sends two supernatural witnesses, these two witnesses described in Revelation chapter 11. Then there's 144,000 who are sealed by God, become believers, and they become these super evangelists, and they evangelize the world. That's earlier in chapter 7, Revelation 7. And then the second part of chapter 7, John sees a great multitude in heaven that has come out of the great tribulation. Hmm. So we know that many, many are saved during the tribulation, just as people are saved today, so people will be saved during the seven-year tribulation. Many of those will die, and we see them in heaven in chapter 7 of the book of Revelation. Others will make it all the way to the end, to the second coming of Christ, and that is, I believe, the sheep of the sheep and the goat judgment. The sheep will enter into the kingdom. All right, we'll take a break. We're continuing our study in First Thessalonians. We're in chapter 5. Jeff Verdorn is our teacher, and we'll be right back after a short break. Hi, this is Bill Arnold. You might be the kind of person that goes to Paris and still listens to Faith Radio on the app. Or you might be more like the person that goes into the next room in your apartment and listens. The good news is, is using the app is just as easy in both places. Downloading the free app is crazy easy. Just text the word app to 877-933-2484 and click the link. And if you happen to be in Paris, there is a really nice little coffee shop not far from the Eiffel Tower that serves a really nice chocolate biscotti. Jeff Verdorn is my guest as we continue an excellent study in 1 Thessalonians. We're in chapter 5. Jeff, would you like me to read verse 5 in chapter 5? Yes, that's where we're at. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. This is a fascinating one. Paul uses this metaphor of light and day. And that as believers, we are children of the light. John 12 says that believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of light. Paul says in Ephesians 5 that we who are in the Lord were once in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live, therefore, as children of light. So we are literally children of light in Christ Jesus. Now, Light, obviously, is the opposite of darkness. We are the light of the world, just as Jesus was the light of the world, and we are in him, so now God calls us the light of the world. The world is in darkness, so Paul asks, what does light have in common, or what fellowship does light have with darkness, 2 Corinthians 6? And the answer is none, Actually, and so that's where he goes on, and we. This is probably one of our familiar, more familiar passages. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common, or what fellowship can light have with darkness? Right. Mm-hmm. So we are not to be yoked with unbelievers in in marriage and relationship. Take that as as you will in terms of your business partnerships or your your friendships and so on. Jesus, remember, still ate with tax collectors and sinners, uh, but he fellowshiped with believers, but he proclaimed to unbelievers. He was light, 
the world is dark. Also remember this, light overcomes darkness. Light always overcomes darkness. I was in a large church one time and they shut all the lights off and then one, it was dark, dark as dark, and one person lit one candle and all 4,000, 5,000 people in this auditorium at this church service could see that light. John 1, 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus came as the true light. He gives light to all mankind. John 1, verse 3 and 9, the world is in darkness and Jesus has overcome that darkness. He says he has overcome the world, John 16, 33. And now as we as believers have overcome the world, 1 John 5, 5, we are sons of light which we just read, 1 Thessalonians 5, 5. We have fellowship with the light, 1 John 1, 7, and we are to testify about the light so that all men might believe, John 1, 7. By the way, look at those verse references I just read. It's kind of cool. The first one was 1 John 5, 5, 1 Thessalonians 5, 5, 1 John 1, 7, and John 1, 7. Oh, I like that. Oh, that's kind of weird. I just noticed that. I'd never seen that before. So, Jeff, why why warn them that the day will come like a thief, and why encourage them to be watchful? Is it because this devastation, this destruction, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor will ever again? So, the, why does God... Sorry, I was... Yeah, coughing. my throat. Yep. Why does God warn us, or why does God... It's not really a warning. We're mm-hmm. being told that it's yep. coming, right? Right. So, the this day that's going to come... In fact, uh, earlier in Thessalonians, it's, it's, he says, remember, I used to... T- no, in Second Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul says, remember, Thessalonians, I used to tell you these things when I was with you. So Paul obviously taught them about the end times, about eschatology, and much of his letters is reminding them of what uh, what he taught them when he was with them in person. So, uh, or at least that's what it seems to be. Yeah. So look, the rapture teaching, the rapture doctrine, this idea that one day the trumpet's going to sound and we are going to get caught up together into the clouds and meet the Lord in the air, is, is the hope that we have. In fact, everywhere the rapture is discussed, there's always this sense of, of expectation, of hopefulness that, that, you know, Christ is going to blow that trumpet mm-hmm. and we're going to get called home either by death or by the rapture, either way. And I was just in a study this morning with some folks, men's group that I have, and Paul writes in Philippians that uh, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So whether we die and go home and be with the Lord or we're caught up with him, we're going to be with the Lord. That's really, really good news. Therefore, yeah. encourage one another with these words. The best. Um, how about verse 6 and 7 and 8? Okay. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober, For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. So Paul's continuing this metaphor kind of of light and darkness. Now he's using the terms asleep and awake. 
Those who are asleep are unsaved. They're the ones who get drunk at night, um, and they are uh, clearly unbelievers. They're not saved. Those of us who are awake are the saved. Um, We are aware. The world is not. Uh, Live then, and then he goes on to say, live then as aware children of light. That's how you are to live, not like the world. That's the world is the world. They're going to live as the world lives. You, however, are not asleep. You are not in darkness. So don't live like them. Live a holy, set-apart life. And now notice this passage comes right after this discussion of the rapture. So like we, like we were just talking about, there is a puring, purifying effect for people who study the rapture and have this hope. And so I'm going to read 1 John 3, 2 through 3, and it says this, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. That's our future glorification. But we know that when he appears, that's the rapture, we shall be like him, our glorification. For we shall see him as he is. Verse 3, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. When we have a hope for this day, for this rapture, for this snatching up of the church to Christ, it purifies us. It has a purifying effect. I think it's because we are setting our minds on heaven. We're fixing our eyes on Jesus. We're waiting for that day. We're storing up our treasures in heaven. We're seeking him first and all those other descriptions about trusting the Lord with all of your heart. When we're fixed on him, it has this purifying effect in our lives. That is the only way to live, Jeff Verdorn. Hmm. Indeed. To, you know, there's so many places where he calls us, don't conform any longer. Now that you're saved, mm-hmm. don't conform any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Study his word. Being transformed by it is the only way I know how to do that. Mm-hmm. All right, verse 9. Do we have time for verse 9? We sure do. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath. I'm just going to pause there for a second. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you mentioned but, that earlier. Yeah, for God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, so we saw this in chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians, uh, verse 10. It says, and this is where we introduce the idea that every chapter in Thessalonians speaks of the rapture. And it says this, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Well, that was the start of chapter one. Now at the end of First Thessalonians in chapter five, he says, we are not appointed to suffer wrath. I, I think Paul's trying to drill this into our head that we are not under wrath as believers in Christ Jesus we are not under the wrath of God. So some of the passages that we looked at last time, just quick, again, review, he says he keeps us from the hour of trial that's coming upon the world. Romans 8.1 says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're not under his wrath. And all of the tribulation is the wrath of God. So John 3.36 also spells this out very clearly. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains upon him. 
those who are unbelievers will face the wrath of God. Uh, All that remains is a fearful expectation of judgment, God says. And uh, they are under his wrath. They are under condemnation because they have not believed in the Son, uh, in the, the in the Son, Jesus Christ, and mm-hmm. have eternal life. All right. Let's take a little break, and we'll come back as we are in First Thessalonians chapter 5 with Bible teacher Jeff Verdorn. If you have your Bible open and your notebook out, you're doing this uh, well, because that's the best way to study God's Word, is to write things down along the way. Jot questions about a verse that you might have, and if you have a question about anything we've discussed so far, you're absolutely free to send the question over 877-933-2484. And we'll be right back with Jeff in just a minute. It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. Yeah. What's for dinner? Yeah. It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Whether you just jumped in your car or you're figuring out what's for dinner, the greatest thing you can do in this next half hour is learn what uh, Paul is talking about in First Thessalonians, and we're discussing this with Jeff Dorn. We're in First Thessalonians chapter five. Jeff, may I read verse ten and eleven? Do it. Yes. All right. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as, in fact, you are doing. So two things. Paul is mixing his metaphors here. We just talked about those who are awake and those who are asleep as being believers and unbelievers. But now he's changing. He's going back to 1 Thessalonians 4, the previous chapter, and saying those who are awake, meaning still alive on earth, Christians who are still alive on earth, and those who are asleep, Christians who are asleep. So this is the same as First Thessalonians 4, where it says the dead in Christ, those who are asleep, will rise first, and after that we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds. So now he says that Christ died for us, and whether we're asleep or awake, we have this hope this hope of being gathered to him. So whether you're in Christ and you've already died and you're in heaven with him, right? The dead in Christ, where are they today? They're with the Lord. Paul clearly says absent from the body at home or with the Lord. And we know the Lord is seated at the right hand of the Father. So we know that when you die today as a believer in Christ Jesus, you are immediately ushered into the presence of the Lord in heaven. So either way, whether we die or whether we're raptured, we will be with him forever. Therefore, encourage one another. So Paul, once again, two chapters in a row, is telling us to encourage one another with this truth. The the pre-trib rapture is such a source of hope and encouragement for the church. Mm, I agree. Jeff, here's a question that just popped in. It'd be nice to address do you consider the rapture to be the same as the second coming? Um, so I can't remember. I think that was this was two times ago where we made the distinction and clear distinction, I might add, between the rapture and the second coming. Mm-hmm. Really briefly, there's a couple of key distinctions. 
at the rapture, the church is seen going, is on earth and is seen going up into the clouds and being with the Lord in heaven. And at the second coming, the church is seen as an army on their own white horses coming down with Christ from heaven down to earth. At the rapture, the tribulation begins. Remember, it says destruction comes upon them. Mm-hmm. And at the second coming, the what comes after that is the millennial reign of Christ. It's it's his kingdom. It's peace. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God and then establishes his kingdom when there will be peace on earth. At the rapture, the Antichrist is revealed. We'll see that when we get to 2 Thessalonians 2, and he'll come upon the scene. At the second coming, Christ takes the Antichrist, this beast uh, of Revelation 13, and uh, throws him into the lake of fire. Um, So there's a lot. We've talked about a number of differences. There's three, but yes, the rapture and the second coming are two different things. And I believe separated by seven years. Mm-hmm. The, the rapture at the start of the tribulation, the second coming at the end of the tribulation. And Jeff, uh, I know you lost some people when you said he'll tread the winepress of the fury of the Lord. Yeah, that's well, a that quote. Over someone's head. Yeah, that's a quote from Revelation 19, this beautiful passage of Christ on a white horse, his eyes ablaze, a sword coming out of his mouth. He's riding a white horse on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name only he knows, and it's written on his thigh, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and that's Christ at his second coming, coming down from heaven, not coming as a as a babe in a manger and riding on a on a donkey into Jerusalem. When he comes back, at the second coming, he's coming back as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And yes, one of the things he does immediately when he touches him, when his feet are going to stand on the Mount of Olives, when he returns, it says in Scripture that he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. This is the battle of Armageddon when he destroys the nations that are trying to destroy Israel. Okay. One more question before we move on, if that's all right. Mm-hmm. Will the tribulation start immediately after the rapture, and is there any indication in the Bible as to exactly when, during the seven-year Antichrist, the Antichrist is revealed? Yeah, uh, very good question. Um, there is actually nothing in Scripture that I've found that tells us the timing from the rapture of the church to the start of the tribulation, okay? So the rapture of the church, many people believe that that's the start of the tribulation. It's actually technically not the start of the tribulation period. The start of the tribulation period is when he, the Antichrist, confirms a covenant with many for one seven or one seven-year period. That is officially the start of the seven-year tribulation period, according to Daniel chapter 9. So how long is it between the rapture of the church and when the Antichrist uh, signs this covenant uh, for a seven-year period? We don't actually know. Mm-hmm. Um, is it a day, a week, a year? Is it more than that? We actually don't know. But the church is going to be caught up. I get the sense that that seven-year tribulation period is going to start relatively soon. What I mean by that is weeks and months, probably not years. Mm-hmm. Oh, the but, second part of that was, what was the second part of that question? Something uh, about the Antichrist. 
Yeah. Is there anything, any indication in Scripture as to exactly when, uh, during the seven-year tribulation, the Antichrist is revealed? Yeah, first thing. It's it's the first seal. Okay. So the first event, Revelation chapter 6, the first seal is open, and John sees a rider on a white horse. Now, this is the imposter Christ riding a white horse, not the real Christ riding a white horse. He is bent on destruction and he deceives many, and that is the Antichrist coming up on the scene. And then, of course, what I just described, then he signs this firm covenant with many for one seven-year period. So he comes upon the scene immediately, um, but right as the tribulation is beginning. Mm-hmm. I have a bunch of great questions coming in, Jeff, and I don't know if these are the kind of questions we should save for Guy Talk on Thursday, because I do want to get back to uh, our study in First Thessalonians. Well, are they end times related? Maybe we should ask them, or what? Well, one of them is, is if you're asleep in Christ, dead, mm-hmm. then how would you be awake in heaven? Yeah, so... Asleep a, in Christ, a, just a, a saint that has passed on and is now in glory. Yeah, so Paul is using the, the word asleep to describe those who have died in Christ. That is why, by the way, some believe that there's some kind of soul sleep in heaven, that when we die, we are uh, unconscious, we're sleeping somehow, and until the day of the resurrection, until the rapture, basically, and then somehow we wake up. I don't think that's the picture. I think Paul is using this phrase, asleep, to describe those who have died and have gone to heaven. In heaven, when Paul says, absent from the body, present with the Lord, that boy, that sure doesn't sound like soul sleep to me. So mm-hmm. I think when we are in heaven, we will be conscious. We won't be in our bodies. We will just be our soul, our soul spirit. Uh, but you know what? Without a body, I think we'll be more real in that moment than we've ever been mm. in this physical body here on earth. Mm-hmm. Jeff, do we know much about what our role as Christians will be during Christ's millennial reign? I mean, am I going to get my radio job back? <laughs> will there will there be radio? Um, you know, we have a lot of descriptions of this kingdom, the millennial reign, mostly in the Old Testament. Uh, this is the time when Christ will rule from Jerusalem. The temple is going to be rebuilt. Um There'll be the the wolf will lie down with the lamb and the lion will eat straw like the oxen and there'll be peace on earth. Men will beat their weapons into plowshares. Um, and so, but at the end, never forget, at the end of this thousand year period, there's one last rebellion. Oh, by the way, Satan is bound during this time. Mm. Um, so, but yet the people who believe and make it into the kingdom will have children and their children will have children, and so on, and so on, and so on. Mm-hmm. And get a load of this. Even though Jesus is ruling as King of kings and Lord of lords on earth as it is in heaven, right? Mm-hmm. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There will be people, in fact, many people by the end of the thousand-year reign who do not, who have not received Jesus as Lord. They submit to him as king, but they don't accept him as their Lord and Savior. And there's going to be one last rebellion at the end of the thousand-year reign. Revelation says that Satan will be released. There's one last rebellion, and God deals with that very quickly. Um, so, Jeff, so, why does that not surprise me? I mean, some yeah. people saw Jesus leave the Mount of Olives and physically just ascended to heaven, and then the 
passage says, and yet some still did not believe. And I think of Lucifer getting kicked out of heaven. Why wouldn't somebody not believe in the thousand-year millennial reign when Jesus is in charge? Yeah, in my class, in my end times class, I often get these puzzled looks like, how can you have unbelievers during the millennial reign when Christ is ruling and reigning on earth? And I say, yeah, you mean like when they see this resurrected man come out of the grave just as he said, and yet they still don't believe? Or how about when God parts a sea and destroys an army right before you and you end up making a golden calf or, you know, on and on and on? That's kind of the history of of man, I think, especially as described in Scripture. Um, here is Christ on earth ruling. Uh, will there be radio? Yeah, I think the world will be rebuilt in an amazing way. Satan will be bound. There won't be wars. The best, most efficient form of government is a, a kingdom, and the best thing is to have a righteous king. How many people today would say, I will take a righteous king to rule us like Christ. Mm-hmm. Sign me up. Amen. I'll take a little break and be right back with Jeff Verdorn. We are still studying First Thessalonians chapter 5, but we have answered some amazing questions. And I have one more, Jeff, for you when we come back. Again, First Thessalonians chapter 5. Be right back. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. I'm back with Jeff Verdorn. We're studying 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Jeff, one more question that came in about all of the tribulation is of God. So does God use the unholy trinity during the tribulation to help accomplish his will? Sure. Yeah, good question. Absolutely. In fact, God used, that's all God has to use down here, by the way, is the imperfect. And he uses people and kingdoms and nations. He used Babylon to judge Israel. Um, he, he used Pharaoh for his purposes and, and set his people free. Um, so, yes, he uses these to accomplish his goal. Remember, he's working all things for good. All means all. God is working all things to accomplish his will in the end. Thy will be done mm-hmm. on earth as it is in heaven. All right. Who and when will believers rule? Oh, good question. So we were just talking about believers' role during the millennial kingdom. I should have added this one, actually, that one of the things that we do in the millennial kingdom as believers who have been resurrected, remember at the rapture, we spent a ton of time talking about what happens at the rapture, and that is the glorification of the body. That's when we receive our permanent, glorified, eternal body. Whether you're dead in Christ or alive and remain, you get a glorified body, just like Christ's glorified Mm. body. And he says in Revelation, it says that uh, those, now this is specifically for the great multitude, but it applies to all believers, that they will come to life and reign with him for a thousand years. So one of the things that we do is we reign with Christ. Remember, we have an inheritance. We're heirs with Christ. We're heirs uh, to the kingdom of God, co-heirs with Christ, and we will rule and reign with him for a thousand years. Wow, that sounds really cool. Mm, sounds really cool. I love that. 
All right, Jeff, we've got about eight minutes left. What can we tackle in eight minutes? Let's try, yeah, let's do 12 and 13. We can do that. Okay. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. So a couple of ideas here. Uh, first, the those who are over you in the Lord uh, are the elders of the church. Paul gives very specific instructions in Timothy and in Titus about the qualifications for these overseers or these elders in every city. And uh, we as believers are to submit to those who have authority over us uh, in the church. Um, so hold them of high regard, he says, and respect them. Uh, God has called them and placed them over you. And uh, yeah, so the church structure is defined in Scripture, and every single church should have a board of elders uh, that run the church. They, remember, the qualifications of the elders are spelled out in Titus and, and Timothy. I won't go through uh, them here today. But uh, then the last part of this is to live at peace with one another. Now, now this is a very interesting one. We have you ever seen that bumper sticker bill as you're driving down the down the road? Coexist. <laughs> I have seen that, and I always think that whoever has that on their car probably hasn't spoken to their parents in eight in about three years. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's always one of these things that why don't I don't I never see a Christian right with a coexist sticker on their on their car a bumper sticker True. on their car uh, because it tends to be uh, of those of you know more of a a left political persuasion and because these different things typically whenever I see one it's like yeah you I I kind of get the sense of they're pointing their finger at all the. Remember the T's are the Christians in the coexist and saying, you think you have the truth? You don't have the exclusive truth. There's many truths and they're all equal and so on. I always get a sense of that. And yet Paul says, live at peace with each other. Mm -hmm. Coexist. I love it. I think Christians, we should all start putting this coexist on our cars and because we Paul calls us to coexist. Now, one of the other problems with this is that it's really hard to coexist, especially with some of the events going on in the Middle East right now. This is more true than ever when I'll say some of the seas, the sea is always represented as a crescent, the Islamic crescent. The X is typically the star of David representing Jew and Jewish beliefs. And then, of course, the T, the cross of Christ. And so how do you coexist when some of the C's want to kill the X's and the T's? Well, we're seeing that unfold, unfortunately, right now Mm -hmm. in the Middle East. But as believers in Christ, we are called, as much as it's up to you, live at peace with one another. In fact, we're called to love one another. Living at peace, actually, is relatively easy, right? I I live at peace with all my neighbors. I don't know them all, but I live at peace with them. But you know what's harder? To love them. And by the way, that love is that agapeo, agape. That's a self-sacrificial, I'm going to give myself up for my neighbor, the person that I am called to love. Do you remember the story of the Good Samaritan? Mm -hmm. 
the the priest back uh, passes by the the religious passed by this guy who had been robbed and left for dead, but the Samaritan helps him, takes him, brings him to a basically a hotel, gives the clerk the his credit card and says, "Care for this person, make them well." He gives himself up for this man lying on the side of the road. That's agape love. Mm-hmm. Agape love is not a feeling. We don't feel in love with agape love. That's more eros and phileo love. These are different Greek words for love. Agape love is not a feeling. It's it's an action. I'm going to give myself up for you. I can live at peace with a lot of people. I find it much, much, much harder to love my neighbor sacrificially mm-hmm. as myself. And a lot of people think of peace just as absence of conflict. And if you don't really have any conflict with your neighbors, then you would go, well, I guess I'm at peace with them. But I think your point is well taken, Jeff Dorn. Do you, do you really love them? Do you know them? Are you investing in their lives to the point where you have a, a love relationship? And that gets trickier um, with neighbors. It does. This high calling of God, to love God and to love others, I mean, mm-hmm. this is... This is his royal law, if you will. These are his first and second greatest commandments. All the law is summed up. I think most Christians would say, if you do love the Lord with all of your heart, and I think almost every Christian I know would say, yes, absolutely. Do you love others as yourself in a self-sacrificial agape or agapeo way? Mm-hmm. Oh, much more convicting, isn't it? Oh, it's way more convicting. All right, we got a little bit off track in terms of what we hope to get through chapter 5 today, so we're going to have to return in episode number 11 to finish chapter 5. Are you okay with that, Jeff? I am. We still, we'll still finish 5, and then we'll start up with Second Thessalonians um, chapter 1 maybe uh, next time uh, as well. I look forward to it. I, I will see you again on Thursday. Thanks, Bill. For Guy Talk. That's oh, yeah. all the show we have for today. Thank you so much for spending time with me. I love being with you. I hope you have a wonderful night, and I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.